You've got Mark chapter 8 selected in your Bibles, yes? Cell phones are turned off, yes? Or on vibrate or something like that? Let's pray and we'll open up uh, in the Word together. Father, just pray that, that through all of this, Lord, you are the one who is um, given all the honor here. That you're the one that we look to. You're the one that um, we recognize it gives anything we do life. As, as much time and effort we can put into crafting a sermon or outlining a worship service or all of that, Lord, none of it will be effective or have life apart from your Spirit. So Lord, I pray that uh, during this study this morning, you'd open our eyes, open our hearts uh, to receive the things that we hear from you, Lord. Open, open uh, ears, open minds. Help us to comprehend just your, your greatness, the awesomeness of your power and your great compassion and what that has meant for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, not too long ago, I uh, heard a story about a guy that was passing on wisdom to a young man who had sort of admired his life. He, uh, the, the, the man was fairly well off, you know, had done well for himself in business and had succeeded by the world standards. And the, the young guy wanted to know what was the secret of success. So he said, you know what, everything I've learned about success, I got from a book I read many, many years ago. And so, of course, the young guy was very, no, it's not the Bible. This is, this is an illustration, um, although the Bible is that book. But he said, I, I got all this, my keys to success from a book, and I, I'm going to pass that book on to you. So the day came, and the man gave, passed the book on to his young protege, and the book was The Tortoise and the Hare. And everything I learned about success in life, I got from The Tortoise and the Hare. And so there's some great application there. Well, it was about five or six years ago, my father passed on a book to me. He said, Steve... I've got this book, it's really important to me, and I want to pass it on to you, and I couldn't wait to see what this book was, you know, some scholarly work, uh, you know, some classical author, and it was uh, a book called Hey Little Ant. Now, I'm 46 years old now, so, you know, I was 39-year-old, and my dad says, i got a book I want to give to you, and it's called Hey Little Ant. Anybody read this before? Moms and dads, great book to get, and it's a book about uh, compassion, and the author uh, portrays a, an interaction between a boy and a little ant. So the first page, you see here, I don't know if you can all see that, the, uh, the young boy, the kid says, Hey, little ant, down in the crack, can you hear me? Can you talk back? See my shoe? Can you see that? Well, now it's going to squish you flat. Now the ant speaks, and of course he's got a problem with this plan. And the ant says, Please, oh, please do not squish me. Any book that says squish is okay in my, in, in my agenda. Change your mind and let me be. I'm on my way with a crumb of pie. Please, oh, please don't make me die. Well, we see the perspective now. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's children's story time. Uh, and the kid says, anyone knows that ants can't feel. You're so tiny, you don't look real. I'm so big and you're so small, I don't think it'll hurt at all. Well, the next few pages I'm not going to read to you, but it goes on. The ant begins to um, find a common ground with the boy, that they're not so different after all. They have the same, you know, they both have families, they both have needs. And so he tries to, the ant begins to humanize himself 
to the, uh, to the young boy. And so the pages go through. And the boy you know, continues to argue about why he should be able to squish the little ant until finally we come to a page that uh, portrays the ant like this. The ant nice and big. And the boy very small. They've changed roles. And the ant is now saying, I can see you're big and strong. Decide for yourself what's right and wrong. If you were me and I were you, what would you want me to do? And then the, the story ends with a big shoe and the ant standing under the shoe. And it just says, should the ant get squished? Should the ant go free? It's up to the kid, not up to me. We'll leave the kid with the shoe raised up. Or excuse me, with the raised up shoe. What do you think that kid should do? And that's a good question because as we come to Mark chapter 8, uh, one of the challenges I faced was the section on the feeding of the 4,000 is pretty long. I didn't want to rush through the section uh, of the Bible and then rush through communion. So I decided that we will we just do an introduction today and then we'll do the whole passage next week. So let's just read the first three verses of Mark chapter 8. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. So the story goes on and, and Jesus feeds the, the 4,000 just as he had fed the 5,000. But this really, it just, it stopped me in my tracks uh, when I read this because to us, the fact that Jesus had compassion has become so commonplace. I mean, we just expect that. We know that that's, of course, this is Jesus. He has compassion. And we've watched it all through the Gospel of Mark. All kinds of people that have been sick and hurting and, and lepers and deaf and, you know, all kinds of people with issues have been coming to him or being brought to him and he's healing them. He's caring for them. He's, he's taking care of their needs. He's meeting their needs. And so it seems so common to us. But let's just, I wanted to take a minute and look at the thinking behind compassion. So he says, he's got his disciples there. They're in the Jesus School of Ministry. It's not the first time he's mentioned compassion. Uh, it happened the last time he saw the crowds that were hungry. He had compassion on them there. There's This word for compassion is used, I think, 12 times in the New Testament. Different places. We'll see it in the story of the prodigal son. We'll see it in the story of the Good Samaritan. And he's trying to teach his disciples, just as God would teach us today, that he is a compassionate God. Not just New Testament. Old Testament too. And, and if we are his people, and if we are his disciples, then what do we have to learn too? Compassion. So, number one, what is compassion? One person defined it as the feeling we get when confronted with suffering infused with the desire to help. So you see suffering, and we see that the world has no lack of suffering. So you see suffering, and then you turn the channel. That's not compassion. That might be pity, but that doesn't move you. Compassion is seeing the need, being moved by it, and then actually those that have the means to do something actually doing something about it. Now, in our society, I think there's a lot of things that are killing compassion. We have a lot of anti-bullying programs nowadays, don't we? 
But maybe what we need is more pro-compassion programs. And maybe God has cornered the market on compassion. The interesting thing was, is I studied about compassion. I did my Google searches. Do you know, this was, it was a sad, to me, a sad testimony. Do you know what comes up as you Google compassion? What the things that come up most at the beginning of the search are, are Buddhist references. Buddhist references. And I thought, my, the church isn't known for compassion anymore. In the first century after Christ, I mean, the church, everything we know about compassion, the fact that you can go to a hospital, the fact that there's foster care, the fact that there are hospice houses, none of that existed in ancient Rome. That all comes out of the, the, the uh, mentality, the life, the spirit of Christ. Those things have begun. And, and so we, because we expect those things are so common to us, we just, hey, we just expect everybody's like that. But that's not the case at all. These things are uniquely Christian ways of thinking. So even if, even if you grew up in a home that didn't believe in God, that didn't, uh, you know, have a, have a relationship with God, didn't go to church, everybody, I would say almost everybody in this room, Anybody here that's grown up in America has grown up, even if not believing in God, having inherited a Christian core center of ethics and values. And it's because of that that we even care what happens to the poor. We go to the, to the soup kitchen and minister there. And we see that as a great value, a great, a great ethic. Not the, not the way it's been throughout the world, throughout history. Nursing home ministry, caring for the elderly, caring for the dying. All of these things, what, what, what does it have? This doesn't have its root in the, in, in the worship of Zeus. It has its root in the worship of the true and living God, who we know through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says what it takes to say here, I have compassion on the multitude. He's making a definitive statement to his disciples because he wants them to know who he is and how he operates. Because he wants them to operate the same way. I, I don't know what, see, because the Pharisees, religion hadn't led them to compassion, had it? Jesus talks about, he, he actually pronounces a woe on them, because it's woe to you Pharisees, because you basically, you rob widows of their houses, and then you make long prayers as a pretense. You're hypocrites. There's another place where they talk to him, he talks to them about tithing, and he says, oh, it's wonderful that you tithe, but you neglect the more weightier matters. Mercy, he lists as one of those. So you can tithe, you can go through the religious routines and completely lack compassion or mercy or care. So religion sometimes can get in the way of you actually being compassionate. Because you could say, well, you know, I put my check in the offering box and now I've done my duty. And so if you see someone in need, you go, well, I, I gave it the office. But there's a quality of those that are Christ. I mean, two of the disciples are James and John. They are the sons of what? Sons of thunder. These guys were tough guys. They're tough fishermen. And they, uh, there's been a radical change in their lives. We come to the New Testament and James tells us in, in James chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Wait a second. Do you mean that's true? What God defines as religious is not just going through the routine, but it actually means 
not waiting for widows and orphans to come to church. But it says that he, he says to visit them, to go to them. And widows and orphans would represent those that had no way of helping themselves. No resources of their own. They didn't have life insurance and health insurance and all that stuff. James goes on to say in James chapter 2, what good is it, Calvary Chapel, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, a faith that doesn't have any evidence that it exists basically is dead, doesn't exist. Well, how do we know what that looks like? James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needy for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. John, who was again, son of thunder, before Christ is raised from the dead, uh, says in his, in his epistle, but if anyone has this world's goods, in other words, the resources for sustaining life, and sees his brother and fellow believer in need, yet closes his heart of compassion against him, how can the love of God live and remain in him? So in other words, God, when you get saved, God in, infuses his spirit. His, God, the spirit of God comes to dwell in your life. And, and he is the Holy Spirit. He's like God. It's the nature of God comes to dwell in you. And the only thing you can do is either quench it or live it out. That's the choice. You can't quench the Spirit, right? God is saying, oh, Steve, I would so badly want to use you to meet these needs. I so badly want to use you to do these things. But then things in your life can cause that to be quenched, to not be acted upon. And there's a number of things that we can talk about that, that cause compassion to go by the wayside. So if, if God is working that way in you, John says, if you see a need and then you, you quench the Spirit, you don't reach out to meet that need, what happens is that the love of God in your life begins to dissipate. Because how can God's love remain in you if you don't do that? So you start to see the love of God dwindle and you, you, you kill compassion in your life. There's other things that kill compassion in your life. Uh, there's a lot of links they're, they're making now between violent video games and, and killing compassion. Uh, the studies, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, the studies are inconclusive. Some say they really do impact. Some say they don't. The number one best-selling video game right now is a, is a video game called Mortal Kombat. And it is uh, known for its off-the-charts portrayal of very realistic violence. And the ability that you have to... Um, increase the amount of violence uh, shown to a person who's already uh, beaten. And then, so the question, does this affect, does it kill compassion? And you might say, well, you know, kids watch that stuff and it doesn't really affect them. They're not going to go out and become serial killers or something like that. Maybe not, but we're seeing a rise in, in shootings. We just had one last week, another school shooting. So maybe it's not going to make your child a serial killer and you can, you know, justify that, uh, you know, playing the games, but how do you know it doesn't affect you? How do you know? The only way to know is to see what happens if you stop playing them. See maybe how that changes your, your way of thinking or it changes your... I know things that affect me uh, in a great way. Just being around someone that curses a lot. You ever have to be around someone that curses a lot? Do you find yourself being more tempted to curse? If you're So you tell me being around someone who curses a lot affects me toward cursing, puts those things in my mind, but somehow playing gory, violent video games I can still be, you know, love little teddy bears and stuff, you know. 
I don't know. I'm just saying, both guys that wrote this, that, that did the research, one guy said, we're not sure they, they have such an effect as, as we think. The other guy says, definitely, they, they desensitize us to violence. Either, at the end of the article, they both said, whatever the case is, we both don't let our kids play violent video games. They both agreed on that. So do with that what you will. Um, Princeton did a study on, on, on the Good Samaritan. Uh, well, they did a study on that type of, on, on compassion, really. Because the, the Good Samaritan, we see, um, you know the story, a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, this guy lying in the, in the road. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The, the religious guys had walked by. They'd passed by for one reason or another. But the Samaritan is the hero of the story. He's the one who shows mercy or compassion. He sees the guy's need. He intervenes to help him out. And, and then he even takes him and puts him up in a hotel and says, if there's any more that he needs, I'll put it on my bill. So what they did is at Princeton, they did a study. They took all these kids. I think it was seminary students. And they said, okay, we're going to give them each a preaching responsibility. So here, a preaching um, assignment. So they bring them all into the, the building, all into the classroom and say, okay, here's you six are going to be preaching on the Good Samaritan. And then they gave other passages to these other students. And they wanted to see what would happen if these kids had to encounter someone laying in a hallway, coughing and choking and, and laying there, you know, in the hallway. What would, would they stop and respond? So they thought, well, maybe if the guys are preaching on the Good Samaritan and they're thinking about that, then they would stop. So they have to leave that main room and go somewhere else on campus. And the other part of it was they were all given uh, a variable amount of urgency. In other words, one, some of the kids were told, okay, you're preaching on the Good Samaritan, but you're late. You've got to get across campus right away and get there. And then others were told, well, you're preaching on this or that or the Good Samaritan, but you've got time. Take your time. So they wanted to see what would impact compassion. And what they found was it didn't really matter. The kids that were preaching on the Good Samaritan, but in a hurry, stepped right over the guy in the hallway. Because they were late. And the ones that had time were more likely to stop and help. So what they concluded from this article, this study, was that one of the things that kills compassion is busyness. Busyness. One man said as an old quote, um, I think it was a Greek philosopher that said, beware the emptiness of a busy life. Beware the emptiness of a busy life. So there are, these are the kind of things in our life, and I think we would all agree, you know, we're so busy here and there, and going here and go. we just don't have time for each other. So it's something I, you know, challenges me in my life. I want to have time for people. I want to have time to be compassionate. I want to have, not live my life to the edge, to the red line. So that maybe if the Lord puts someone in my way, I can actually be Christ to that person. Where would we be if we had a compassionless God? Where would we be if we worshipped the pantheon of the ancient Romans? Where would we be if we worked the Canaanite, if we worshiped the Canaanite gods of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I'll tell you where we'd be. Let me read a couple things to you here. Ancient Sodom, God's commentary on ancient Sodom was Ezekiel 16. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. It doesn't even mention uh, homosexuality in that list. 
That's a byproduct. That was some, that was a, you know, something else. But the main issue with Sodom and Gomorrah is that everything they wanted to eat, all, they had everything, they had more than they needed in terms of materialism, and they could care less about the poor and the needy. Well, don't think that's just Canaanite society. Uh, that's ancient Rome. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the term bread and circuses. Have you ever heard that term, bread and circuses? It was a term coined by uh, someone in ancient Rome, an author, that basically meant that as long as the government kept people uh, fed and entertained, they could have their way with them. So elections would be more about uh, are we giving people lots of food and are we giving them lots of entertainment rather than about actually good policy and things like that. So let me just read to you a quick uh, little definition here. Bread and circuses uh, means that it's a superficial, describes a superficial means of appeasement. In the case of politics, the phrase is used to describe the generation of public approval. So how you generate public approval, not through excellent public service or public policy, but through diversion, distraction, or the mere satisfaction of the immediate shallow requirements of the populace. In other words, you want to get elected, understand what shallow people want, and give it to them. And you'll get elected. Its originator used the phrase to decry the selfish and, um, and common people's um, neglect of wider concerns. And the phrase also implies the erosion or ignorance of civic duty amongst the concerns of the commoners. In ancient Rome, their pantheon really valued strength and, and militaristic power. And if you couldn't support the state, then you were not worthy to be a citizen. Then you're not worthy of care in the, in the state. So children that were born, I'll just read, this is from Seneca, a Roman philosopher, said, we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. The Greco-Roman culture did not seek the hungry, sick, or not see the hungry, sick, or dying as worthy of human assistance. Matter of fact, the ancient uh, gladiator realms were one of the, the, the things that it accomplished was to kill compassion in people. By continuing to expose them to violence, they could then continue to perpetuate the war machine uh, and, and the forced enforced peace of, of ancient Rome. So the whole game for them through viewing violence, is this sounding familiar to anybody? A lot of feud, a lot of food, view, view violence a lot. And uh, I think in some ways we're going back there. And I think we're seeing a dwindling of compassion. And then we contrast that with the nature of God. Deuteronomy 15. God says, I want you to open your hand wide to the poor and to the needy and give them sufficient for their care. Exodus 33, 19. He said, I I'm, I'm, myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. One more, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. So God could say, I'm like the big kid, you're like the ant. If I want to squish you, I can squish you. 
How would God finish that story? He did not squish the ant. He provided everything, not just for the ant to live, but then he'd adopt the ant and care for the ant and bless the ant. He'd rescue the ant that was in trouble rather than squishing. This is God. Back to Mark 8. I have compassion on the multitude. And then he says, because. So I have compassion is who he is. Compassion is who God is. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you cannot do it and remain compassionless. You have to be able to think a certain way, live a certain way, and, and act a certain way. And here's what Je- here Jesus models it for his disciples. He models it for us. He says, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Do you see what just happened? We read over this so easy. Because I see that they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. So Jesus had to have this thinking capacity. See, the other thing that kills compassion is selfishness. When all of our thoughts are wrapped up in our own lives, we then fail to see. I mean, think about just in conversation. You have to be, to have compassion, you have to be a good listener. You have to listen to people. And so many times when we're in a conversation, we're so busy thinking about what we're going to say next that we miss what they said. So we have to have time. We have to have the heart to do it, have the heart of Christ to do it. We have to be good listeners and good observers. And then we have to have this really, what I find, the more I live, the more I find this to be, in our day and age, an extremely unique quality that I say, I want to cultivate this in my kids. Because if I can cultivate this in my kids, they will always succeed. And it goes along with being a servant. Talked about that last week, I believe. Um, Kyle, who's an intern here, he and I talk about this a lot. There's a quality in someone that's a, that, that is, has, gives them the ability to see life from another person's standpoint and, and understand what their need is and then meet that need. But it's a very, very selfless quality that, that is only a mindset that I think is, is uniquely cultivated by Christ. Because the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. He's given us the mind of Christ. He's given us the capacity. We just got to not quench it. He's given us the capacity to see that that person might be hurting and what might be able to be helpful to them. How does that look in a marriage? You don't have marriages falling apart where there is compassion, where the husband and the wife are looking out for each other and trying to say, what can I do to help? And seeing without even being told. Nobody had to come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, here's what the, 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 the multitudes need. Oh, I didn't know that. He was so observant that he was able to see, hey, and think, hey, they've been with me three days, have nothing to eat. What would happen if our schools were filled with compassionate kids? Don't you think bullying would stop? If someone took the time to think, you know, he was born that way. He didn't, he didn't ask for cerebral palsy. He didn't ask for his parents to get divorced. He didn't ask for his mom to die when she was, when, when he was young. You know, they're, they're, he didn't ask to be raised up by alcoholic parents. Jesus says, I, I, they've been with me three days. They don't have anything to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. They've come really far. You just picture Jesus. The word here in Greek, splank needs omai. I'm not going to make you remember that. That's the Greek word, splank needs omai. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Just try saying that. To, no, don't say that to each other. And it means to be moved in your bowels. 
It means to be touched deeply to the point where you actually do something. You still say it today. If you see, if you are touched deeply, you say, I, I feel it in my, my gut. So compassion is a, a feeling in your gut that you just can't ignore, that you've got to do something. Everything that happened in the early days of the church, I mean, Christians would care for the sick during a, a plague and considered it an honor to die receiving the same plague of the people that they were treating. Now think about think about going over to Africa, taking on a job as an Ebola worker there. That's compassion. That's I don't have to do that. I don't have to go there. I got a good life here. Why would I want to put myself at risk for them? That's compassionless thinking. Compassionate thinking is I can't imagine what it'd be like to have that and have no one ancient Rome. You were sick, they put you on the street, let you die. Ancient Rome, you got an unwanted child, you just discard it. You have to dehumanize to get rid of compassion. You have to call fetuses uh, a mass of, of cells that's not alive to be able to, to, be able to continue on with abortions. And we do the same things today. But we have to dehumanize these things. And the, the early church did so much. The, the discarded kids... The early church went around, picked them up, took them in, cared for them. The sick people, the early church went around, cared for them. Look at look at what Jesus is doing. And just, so my prayer, I'm going to invite Denny and Teresa up. They're going to share, share a song with us this morning, and they're going to share a little bit of their testimony. Um, I don't I, I don't want to be part of a church that doesn't demonstrate a compassion. And I want to tell you, on, beh- on your behalf, I want to tell you that the elders of the church, you guys give, and that takes compassion. You know, that means I have to be, to, just to give, means I have to be willing to live at a little bit lesser level so that someone else can have, can live at a little bit greater level. And so when you give, 15% of what you guys give into that, into that box in the back goes to help the needs in the community here. We turn on electric you know, we get electric turned back on. We help people with water bills. We help people with uh, housing needs. All anything we can do, we give people food cards for food line. There's a table full of food. If you're here this morning and you need food, people have brought food for you so that you don't have to go without. That's what makes it. That's what gives a church. You know, some people say, "Well, is Calvary Chapel a spirit-filled church?" What do you mean by that? If you're asking if we run up and down the aisles and and dance and and throw our arms in the air and you know, I'm not sure. But if you're saying if the Spirit of God has led us to live compassionately, then I think yes is the answer. I think that's the kind of Spirit-filled church that matters. Spirit-filled families. Spirit-filled schools. So where do you start? You start by yielding your life to Christ and letting Him work through you. You start by praying for people and letting the Lord work through that. You start by saying, Lord, I'm available. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut some things out of my schedule so that I can make time for people and their needs. It's a conscious decision, and, and it's, it's just we're seeing it right here. So we'll, we'll finish this um, next week. Let's pray, and then we have a special song and a, a brief interview with these guys, and then we'll, we'll pass commun- the communion elements out. Does that sound good? Let's pray. Lord, there's uh, so much more that could be said on the topic of compassion. 
And Lord, as we look around the world we live in, it's so easy for us to condemn. And it's so easy for us to point fingers and blame. Uh, But Lord, we know that You look around the world and You said You love the world so much that You gave Your Son. So that whoever believed would not perish but have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would do the same thing. That we would look at the world and love people so much that we would sacrifice so that people could meet not us and not our greatness, but that they could meet you and see your compassion and your love. So Lord, you got to do the work in us. We can't do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.